0: This podcast is produced and issued by Morningstar's Investment Management Group, which includes subsidiaries of Morningstar, Inc., who are authorized for the appropriate jurisdiction to provide advisory services. The content is intended for U.S. audiences and European professional investors only. Individuals featured in this podcast are employed by Morningstar, Inc. and its subsidiaries unless otherwise noted. Stay tuned for additional important disclosure information at the end of this episode.
1: Good decisions are often built on good forecasts. But forecasting is hard, in part because it requires us to be aware of both what we know and what we don't, or even can't know. So what does good forecasting look like, and how can investors use good forecasts in the search for better returns? I'm Drew Carter. Today on Simple But Not Easy, we'll look at what good forecasts look like. Joining me on the phone today from London is Dan Kemp, who's Chief Investment Officer for Europe, the Middle East, and Africa for Morningstar Investment Management, Europe Limited, which is an FCA-regulated firm. Dan, thanks so much for being here.
2: True, I'm delighted to be here.
1: And Ryan Murphy is with me in the studio today. Ryan is Head of Decision Science at Morningstar Investment Management, LLC. Welcome, Ryan, and welcome to the Five Timers Club.
3: It's good to be here again.
1: Now, as usual, I want to start with definitions, and forecasting, I think, can be especially tricky in this regard. Say, you know, a weather forecast might call for a 30% chance of rain, but a GDP forecast might just, you know, give a specific figure for a certain time frame. So what do we mean when we say forecast?
3: So when I think about forecasting, I think of it very broadly. I think we are forecasters almost all the time. I mean, the act of getting out of bed in the morning, this is predicated on a forecast, that this is a good thing to do. So, I mean, so you imagine someone who's buying a car, they're making a forecast that spending that money will make their lives better, make them happier, buying a house, getting married. I mean, I think this is also based on a forecast. So I think that forecasts are all over the place, and I think that any time a person is using their beliefs, to anticipate how their actions are going to have consequences and then using that information as part of a decision-making process, this is part of forecasting.
1: But people don't really think of that as a forecast, right? You know, if you you want to get married and so you get married, you you are afraid of losing your job so you get out of bed and go to work, something like this.
3: But I think that There is, I mean, maybe underneath the surface with a little bit more reflection, there is forecasting that goes on here. So imagine a person's having to choose between two apartments, right, two different neighborhoods. They're implicitly starting to go through a process of, well, here's what my life would be there. I imagine myself being happier in that situation or this other neighborhood and imagining what life could be like there. Both of those simulations of future experiences, those are forecasts. And so I think that people are using this process all the time, imagining what will unfold. And that, that's forecasting, and it's worth drawing that out and being explicit about when we're making forecasts. In a uh, previous episode of Simple Not Easy, Dan and I talked
1: about the book Thinking in Bets, where Annie Duke gets the title from that point, that so much of what we do in life is essentially a gamble, and we should view decisions in life in that way. What's the benefit of looking at decisions as bets or as making forecasts?
3: Well, it's the right way to think about it, right? So if you're thinking about a decision, I mean, it comes down to the fundamentals. So what are the stakes, right? What are the payouts? What are the payoffs? If I do this, what are the consequences that come from that? And then what are the odds? What's the probability of these different things happening? So you have to bring both of those things together to be able to figure out in expectation what makes sense for you to do. So where forecasts come into play are our predictions about what the future is going to be like. And often we try and capture this in some sort of vague idea of I think this is more likely than that. And if we try and be more sophisticated about, we start to get into terms of like probabilities. Like I think there's a 30% chance that this is going to unfold. I think there's a 70% chance that this will happen.
2: And I think from my perspective, that's absolutely key that when we're making forecasts, we are admitting to ourselves that the future is uncertain, uh, that it's not deterministic, that we can make a decision, but that, that we can't necessarily be sure what the outcome is. And so, as we've said, when you get out of bed in the morning, you're making a forecast that that's the right thing to do be because of that. And so I think having in the back of our mind every time we make a decision or every time there's an implied decision like getting out of bed, that there's a forecast behind that and being specific to try and
1: Being specific. And, and there's, there's really a mathematical element as well, right? This sort of probabilistic element comes with a certain element of math to it.
3: Sure. I mean, that's why, I mean, that's the formal way to think about it, to bring these things together, start to put numbers to these beliefs. But to build on Dan's point, there's just irreducible uncertainty. I mean, decision-making would be so much easier if you just knew everything that was going to happen, right? But that's just not the reality we work under. And so because we have limited knowledge and limited ability to predict what's going to unfold next, we have to try and capture those beliefs about what we think will happen. And probabilities are one formal way to do this in a particularly useful way as well. Charlie
1: Munger has been quoted of of course famously as saying, if you don't get this elementary but mildly unnatural mathematics of elementary probability into your repertoire, then you go through a long life like a one-legged man in an ass-kicking contest.
3: It's hard to say it better than that. (laughs)
1: Um, how do we begin to see the world in a sort of probabilistic way or in a, a thinking in bets kind of context? I mean, if someone were considering buying a house, how would you approach that decision in a way that builds forecasting into the process?
3: Dan, do you want to try and weigh in here?
2: I think why don't I start I and mean, you can uh, yeah, you can then correct as we go along. I, I think when we're making any forecast, when we're making any decision, the first thing to realize is that, As we've said already, you can't be certain. And sometimes it's easier to spot that in what other people say than what we ourselves say. And so that could be a good start as you approach this to look out for people who appear to be completely certain in their forecast. And that could be as simple as someone walking out of the house in the morning without a coat because they they don't think it's going to be cold. And they are absolutely certain that they are you know, putting themselves potentially at risk, depending on what the temperature is like, by doing that. But equally, sometimes it's much more complex than that. That when you're thinking about buying a, a house, you're not making one forecast. You're making a huge number of forecasts, both about your own future. Uh, Whether you'll be able to get a mortgage to support the house, uh, whether you'll be able to keep your job to pay the mortgage, whether if you're buying with someone else, you'll stay together through that period in order to pay off the mortgage. But you're also making predictions about other things. So you're making predictions or forecasts rather about the quality of the house that you're buying, the future of the area that you're buying in. And also, as you negotiate with the seller, what the seller is going to do. And so the reason I I mention all of that is not to overwhelm people, but just to pick up on Ryan's point that there is not just one area of uncertainty here. there's a whole uh, range of different uncertainties. And so when we think about making such a big decision, all of those different areas of uncertainty come with massive cognitive load. We could think about them forever. Uh, And so we tend to try and shortcut some of those decisions, and and that can obviously hamper our ability to forecast, hamper our ability to make decisions, and so in that situation, trying to reduce it down as far as possible to things that we can be more or less certain about, then understand, have a clear appreciation of where that uncertainty is going to remain, because things are just to some extent unpredictable when you're dealing with these situations.
1: I think it's safe to say that anyone interested in the topic of forecasting should read Super Forecasting, which is a book by Philip Tetlock and Dan Gardner. The book is somewhat taken up by the sort of sport of competitive forecasting, but certainly it touches on many elements of the practice of forecasting. And one point that Tetlock makes is that so-called experts like Tom Friedman or, or other, you know, newspaper columnists who regularly make calls aren't really forecasting right. Can you uh, both talk about that a bit and explain what makes a good forecast, what it means to make a good forecast?
3: Sure. So for me, one thing that's always remarkable is how experts are able to explain things so well after they happened, but seem not to be able to predict them a priori. And so a lot of the stories and narratives, the explanations that happen after the fact are these very vivid accounts of, here's why it's obvious this was going to be the case. But you look at writings from before, and it's, it's actually not so much all that clear. And so I think that in itself is a disservice, because I think what that's doing is giving the impression that the world is much more easily predictable than it really is. The fact is there's just an irreducible uncertainty on a lot of different fronts, and it's worth acknowledging that up front. And so for me, what makes for a good forecast is the specificity of that forecast itself and being able to look back on it and verify whether or not that forecast turns out to be right or not. And part of that requires being very clear about what the forecast is. Part of that could be quantifying it. And also being clear in time scope, right? So it's easy to say, well, I you know, in an investing context, I think markets will correct at some point in the future. That's a pretty hard statement to ever be wrong, right? So I think something because of its vagueness. Yeah, it's vagueness. I mean, yeah, I haven't told you what I meant by correction, and I certainly you know, I said some time into the future, which that could be a really long time. So I think it's worth when, when we hear those statements that are filled with vagueness, to actually try and force the person saying, say, well, what specifically do you mean? When, when you say correction, what do you mean? What's the time scope? And I think that's what makes for a good prediction. Not good because it's right, but good because it's scorable. And at the end of it, we can tell whether or not that prediction turns out to be correct.
2: Uh, I think that last point is really important. When we're trying to judge the quality of forecasts, that unless you... Are judging something with a 100% probability, then in reality, we can live in many universes uh, when we make that forecast. And what will happen after you make a forecast between then and the forecast either coming true or uh, shown to be true or false, then we follow down one particular path. We live in one particular universe. And so often we try to judge the quality of the forecast. By the universe we happen to live in. But if we judge something as being 80% likely, and this goes back to the Munger quotation, then you know, that means that one in five times, uh, it's not going to happen. And so the fact that it doesn't happen doesn't mean that it was a poor forecast, it doesn't mean that it was wrong, providing it was set with the right level of probability. It just means that we happen to live in the universe where that didn't happen. And it's very challenging to avoid making judgments on the quality of forecasts after the event of Annie Duke brings this up in her book. She calls it resulting, that we judge the forecast by the outcome. But when we're dealing in situations of irreducible uncertainty, as Ryan was talking about, then that's not a good way of judging forecasts. As Ryan said, you should be able to judge the quality of the forecast when it's made by its specificity and also its reason.
1: I'm just going to tell a quick personal story that I think will illustrate what you're talking about with the universes, Dan. Uh, When my wife and I were we're actually living in London and we're having our our first baby, uh, we went for that first scan and found out the gender and it was a boy. And we came home and we were both kind of sad and, and we were trying to figure out why we were sad. And we came to realize that we were mourning sort of the loss of the potential of a daughter. So that other you know, universe was sort of closed up forever. We were not going to have a daughter, and you know that potential before the scan. We had a potential boy and a potential girl. After the scan, we had a boy, but no potential girl. Um, but, but that I think illustrates in a real way uh, how those universes can kind of close on you. Um, Ryan, you have given some examples of a sort of good forecast and a bad forecast. Let me read those out, and we can talk about them. Mm-hmm. Uh, here's the bad one: Facebook will likely remain the dominant social network for years to come. then The good one is, <clears throat> I am 95% confident that Facebook will have more than 2.5 billion monthly users one year from now. What are the important differences there? I, I noticed the use of numbers. Does mm-hmm. does a good forecast need numbers?
3: So this example comes from Mobusin and Mobusin. They have this great paper in Harvard Business Review from a couple of years ago. I definitely recommend it. And they, they go through this example really well. And I just love it. That first one, you read it, and it's the sort of thing you can imagine a person saying. You can imagine at a conference someone says, Facebook will likely remain the dominant social network for years to come, and everyone in the audience smiles and nods dutifully like they've said something that's both informative and useful. And I would argue that they haven't at all. They've taken up airspace and they've just given the veneer of saying something that's actually insightful, which isn't the case at all. Because that statement, I mean, it's not right, but it's not even wrong, because it's so vague. You don't know who's making this forecast, how sure are they, how is it scorable, what's the time scope, all of these other sorts of things. And so I think that that gets to the second example, which says, all right, well, let's take this really vague forecast and turn it into something that's a much more precise, scorable, useful forecast. And so that's the example that comes from that paper as well. So it highlights several things. So the better forecast, again, was I am 95% confident that Facebook will have more than 2.5 billion monthly users one year from now. So it's clear about who's making the forecast, straight off that it, this is me making the forecast. And it could be a team, a group, a firm, something like that. It also gives the confidence level. So this is really useful because you could look at all the forecasts a person makes where they say they're 95% sure and see if they're right 95% of the time. They should be. And if they're not, then you have some evidence that they're perhaps overconfident. And also the remainder of it uh, has you know more than 2.5 billion users one year from now. This is scorable. And so there's a time scope with it. One year after the forecast is made, you can look at this and you can say, yep, that forecast turned out to be correct, it was wrong, and then be able to actually start to you know, develop a, a score on this that over time tells you whether or not the forecaster has some insights into how the world works or whether or not they're misguided.
1: But can, can words do the same thing? Can we use phrases like likely or, or most likely? Or is that the same as putting a number to forecast?
3: You certainly can, but I have my doubts as to how informative those words are. So the paper by Mobison uh, is built off of previous work where researchers in the social sciences, behavioral sciences have looked at what do people believe these likelihood words mean. So if I ask you, say, okay, if I say something is likely, what does that mean to you in a number, between zero and 100? So I put you on the spot here and say, okay, likely is kind of vague. Tell me what that number means.
1: Probably greater than 50%, but um, less than, less than say 70%, Okay, I would so you say. gave
3: me a range between 50 and 70. We're getting closer, so what does likely mean? I would say 60%. Okay. So when you do this with people, it's really interesting because you can give them these kinds of words and some of the words produce massive ranges in terms of what people think those beliefs are.
1: In individuals or among a population of people responding to a survey or something? Um,
3: So populations, it can be random samples. This could be, you know, Americans who are participating in research. It can be experts working in a particular industry like finance. And so you ask a group of people individually, what do you think the word likely means? And some people will be saying as low as 40% and others will be saying as high as 90%. And so that's one of the problems with these vague verbal representations is that we don't have a shared meaning of what that word actually means. And some words are are far more, orally informative in other words. So for example, one of the phrases that I, I love is the phrase, real possibility. Nobody actually seems to know what this means. The range is between something like 20% all the way up to 90%. And so if you wanted to be pernicious, you could use this in a context where you needed to sound smarter than you really were and you say, ah, oh, there's a real possibility. And people will probably again, nod and smile, but nobody will know what you're really saying.
2: Dan, do you wanna get in there? Uh- No, just to say that I think the point that Ryan's made is so incredibly important in an investment context, uh, whether it's a team talking about investment ideas or whether it's listening to someone present an investment idea. One of the fun things that I sometimes do when I listen to someone present an idea is to try and work out whether what they're saying is falsifiable. Uh, And so if they're they're on stage at a conference or on a a, a TV program talking about the investment views, if they're talking about things being a a real possibility, if they're talking in vague terms like the Facebook example, unless something they're saying is clear and falsifiable, then I would normally find someone else to listen to.
1: Ryan, you had mentioned scorability. What's what's the importance of of scorability for a forecast?
3: So that a forecast, you imagine that a person makes a forecast, they write it down that some third party in the future after that time scope has, you know, run out. So if the forecast is a year from now, then a year from now, a third party could read it and decide, oh yeah, this is right or this is wrong. That they could be objectively scored and that someone else could look at it and say, yep, that forecast turned out to be correct. That's what I mean by scoreability.
1: And the importance of, of being able to score it?
3: Well, if it's unscorable, then you're never wrong right? And if you're, that's, that's the problem. It just doesn't have enough information to be all that useful. And so the scorability then is, is that kind of precision that allows us to know whether or not the forecast has information content that down the road actually could be actionable, or you could, you could make a judgment to say, oh yeah, that's right or wrong.
1: So yeah, if you're sufficiently vague, then, then you're never wrong. And I suppose that's probably one reason that columnists or, or other, you know, sort of public forecasters will use that vague language is because you don't have to ever come back and face the music.
3: Yeah, I think that is one of the advantages, but I think that does a disservice to the listeners. I think it takes up valuable airtime and it gives the impression of knowledge when really there's not much there. And one other problem with this is that it gets in the way of learning. And so if the predictions are so vague, the forecasts are unscorable, then it's really hard to even look back at your own forecasts and know how you could improve your thinking. And I think that's one of the things we've been talking and thinking about is how can we make sure our forecasts are clear and scorable and start to use that information to give feedback to folks internally and start to be able to help coach them to to determine which processes they're using are turning good forecasts, forecasts that are precise and accurate, and forecasts that aren't so much. Who are the best forecasters? So from different industries. So there's been lots of different research that's been done in the social and behavioral sciences, looking at different groups, different experts to look at the degree in which they're expertise, the degree of their confidence, actually matches up with their level of accuracy. right? So there's this idea that comes out of the decision science is called a calibration curve. So what you do is you look at all the times a particular forecaster said that they were 80% confident that they were right. Well, if they say they're 80% confident, they should be right 80% of the time. right? They say they're 90% confident, they should be right 90% of the time. So these things should line up. They should line up like a diagonal on a, on a really straightforward plot. That plot is called a calibration curve, and you can look at different forecasters in different industries to look at what kind of calibration curves they have. Research shows that, perhaps surprisingly, one of the best calibrated group of forecasters out there are meteorologists. They have the cleanest calibration curves that are almost perfectly on the diagonal. I think part of the reason for that is they're trained for it, they have sophisticated models they're working with, and they get really quick, clear, clean feedback as to whether or not they're right or not. A person predicts it rains, they wake up the next morning, they find out if they're right or not, and they have a quick and valuable learning cycle. And I think that helps them develop a high degree of calibration. But there's other groups that are perhaps far less so. So one of the classic studies looked at medical doctors to look at the correspondence between their confidence and their accuracy, and their calibration curves were dismal. There were cases in which doctors were 80% confident they were right, but they were right only about 10% of the time and that suggests that there's you know a big gap here and that's something where i think that increased training awareness of this particular overconfidence would be valuable and certainly help people make better decisions as they're trying to elicit important information from experts
1: i think that's astounding that uh, that weather forecasters are better at forecasting than than doctors?
3: Well, I think they're, they're better calibrated. I mean, it doesn't mean if you get sick to go see a meteorologist. <laughs> what it means is it's this idea of what's the correspondence between how confident someone says, here's how confident I am and here's how accurate they are. And other in, you know, groups have been looked at. So lawyers have been looked at and their calibration curves also tend to be rather flat. You know, there's instances where they say they're you know, 80% sure that they're going to be winning a particular case when really it's closer to 50%. Um, And some of the work by Tetlock also looked at geopolitical experts, people who are trying to predict large-scale geopolitical events. For example, what's the probability North Korea would launch a nuclear weapon before, you know, 2022? Something like this. And that one, again, had very surprising results in how poor those supposed experts were calibrated. There were many instances in which these people were saying that they were 100% sure something was going to happen, and they were right close to 30% of the time.
2: I think that's linked to data available as well, and, and how people gather data when making these forecasts. So with a meteorologist, uh, they'll be using a computer program or a number of computer programs specifically designed for that task, as Ryan says they've trained for that task, and they're absolutely clear that they're making a forecast, exactly what that forecast is. But when we think about some of the other examples there and
0: of course, I, I, I hate to admit this,
2: but investment managers tend to score poorly uh, on the calibration curve as well. Uh, that's because a lot of the data that investors use to support their forecasts, which is simply another way of saying investment decisions, is not designed specifically for that purpose. We tend to naturally look for evidence that agrees with our starting view. And so if we're looking for evidence across the piece of data, across not designed design, specifically the forecasting, we're just, I'm consciously picking and choosing those pieces of evidence to support our view, then it's quite natural to see that your confidence would rise in the forecast without accuracy rising. So it's straightforward to see how this happens, but nevertheless, it's a great reminder to anybody that's involved in forecasting, particularly anyone involved in investing to be very careful where you get your data from. And and this goes back, actually, to the point that Ryan was making about people who make deliberately vague forecasts, uh, that it's not just uh, a neutral activity uh, necessarily, but can actually hurt the decision-making processes of those. All
1: right, that's our time for today. Dan and Ryan, thanks so much for being here.
2: Of course. Thank you.
1: If you enjoy the podcast, please consider subscribing and rating us on your favorite podcast app. Until next week, I'm Drew Carter. Bye for now.
0: This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Opinions expressed are as of the date of publication, such opinions are subject to change. Neither Morningstar nor its subsidiaries shall be responsible for any trading decisions, damages, or other losses resulting from or related to the content presented. Morningstar and its subsidiaries make no representation as to the completeness or accuracy of the information presented. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. Forecasts are not a reliable indicator of future results. Investors should be aware of the additional risk associated with funds investing in emerging or developing markets. All investments are subject to investment risk, including possible loss of capital. Investors should seriously consider if an investment is suitable for them by referencing their own financial position, investment objectives, risk profile, and consulting with a regulated financial advisor where necessary before making any investment decisions. In the UK, the Morningstar managed portfolios are intended for citizens or legal residents of the United Kingdom. These portfolios can only be made available through the use of an investment advisor appropriately authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. Tax treatment depends on individual circumstances and is subject to change. Morningstar Investment Management Europe's address can be found at www.morningstar.com.